Welcome to Real Estate Real World, where we talk to the movers, shakers, and leaders that are getting it done right now in the real estate industry and beyond. Your host is Marguerite Crispillo, and she started this podcast simply to talk to cool people about what's really happening in this crazy roller coaster ride of real estate. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes and stay up to date on the newest stuff by adding yourself to the list at www.realestaterealworld.com. Now your host, Marguerite Crispillo. Well, welcome everybody to Real Estate Real World. I am very, very excited today to have an extremely special guest. I heard about her back in, I think, was it November? You were at Inman in New York? Is that where when it was at Inman in New York okay. and and my good friend Heather Ostrom was there and she I don't I know I adore her and she's right here in my neighborhood she's like literally That's her so office funny. is her office is like two doors down from mine she's pretty cool I would be over she, there all the time she's super cool yeah we did a podcast with her a few months back so her and her husband Steve yeah, you gotta let Steve get some love because you know he does a few well, houses here and there. <laughs> He's kind of a, a big deal, but she's the real show, right? She's the real deal. So I heard about you. I'm like, I have got to meet this crazy gal because I think you're awesome. Awesome. So let me read your bio here real quick because I love it. It says, Lee Brown is known as the no bullshit realtor, the owner of one of the most successful real estate firms in the country. Brown teaches sales professionals from all industries and experience levels how to harness the power of their authentic selves to supercharge their business. Da, 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 da. You live in Harrisburg, North Carolina, right? Mm -hmm. Still with your lovely husband, Steve, and your children, Cora and Timmy. How old are Cora and Timmy? Timmy will be 10 in June and Cora is 11 and a half. Oh, and a half. Don't you? You know, I met this gal yesterday at a, a house I was showing, and she was talking about how she loves to have half birthdays because her birthday is in December. And I said, my birthday's in November. I think I'm going to start doing that. I'm going to have a half birthday so I can have a party in June. I like that. I don't want to rush things along at all. Hey, what day is your birthday? I'm a November girl, too. November 27th. What's yours? I'm 22nd. What? Oh, that's awesome. November. My husband is November 21st. So we're all the Thanksgiving people who sometimes get stuck with the birthday on Thanksgiving. Mm -hmm. And pumpkin pie, you know, so that's another, that's another funny story. I always hated pumpkin pie because that's what I got for my birthday every year. And I love carrot cake. So one year, a few years back, my mom, who was living in Kentucky, but she's since passed away, but she m made a carrot cake and FedExed it to me on my birthday. So I got a carrot cake on my birthday. <laughs> awesome. All right. So you wrote this awesome book called Outrageous Authenticity. If anyone can see it, it's fantastic. What I love most about it, it's only 83 pages. No, wait, 86 pages long. Hey, that 86 is a real pages long. <laughs> <laughs> and it's perfect because you can read it like in an hour, you know, hour and a half and you get some key stuff. And I love this because I, we obviously have very similar styles. But I was listening to a podcast the other day with uh, John Paul DeGiorio, who did Paul Mitchell Systems, you know, hair products back in the day. And he said, instead of being in the sales business, be in the reorder business. And I love that because here's what you said. Isn't that good? Writing that down. He said, you said in your book, 
Your most successful salespeople are masters of authenticity. They use this to win over their secret weapon, the repeat client. The very best salespeople are masters of asking questions and hearing the answers and then asking more questions. They are masters of remembering birthdays. Now we have yours. Knowing your favorite color and calling you when they have tickets to a sporting event they know you would love because it involves your favorite team. They are masters of memory and human connection. That's what I love. So tell me a little bit about, let, tell our listeners a little bit about, about your background. Like, how did you get started in real estate? My dad has been in real estate since 1978. So I grew up around this and swore I wasn't going to do it because, you know, any child of real estate doesn't want to do what their parents do. So I went and did several different things after college. I paid for college by bartending. So I just became a bar manager after school because it was easy. One of my regulars hired me and I became a stockbroker, lived in Manhattan. That was not for me. And then in my efforts to get out of being a stockbroker, I wound up in sales for Husqvarna, which is a Swedish manufacturer of premium chainsaws, weed trimmers, and lawnmowers. And so I became the only woman on the sales force for a chainsaw company and spent a um, pretty good amount of time with them. In fact, I mentioned my boss from Husqvarna in my book acknowledgement and he sent me a note. I love him so much. Look at this handwritten (laughs) note. It's like two pages. I love him that much. And so that's very precious to me now. That's a good reason for the book. You get lots of special connections. So anyway, um, after I got sick of corporate sales, I decided to go in with my dad because I didn't know what else to do. I was 25 or 24 ish, almost 25 and was and that was at my third career after college. I'm like, I got to stick with something. So I went back and got into business with my dad. And 16 years later, here I am. So you do a lot of, well, what I first of all love about you is you're very, very honest and open and uh, you're the real deal. But I know that you are pretty rough and tough on the real estate industry. Like we got to step up our game. Some might say I'm controversial, but I do not see why telling the truth is controversial. That drives me completely crazy. (laughs) Well, speaking of controversial, I highlighted another thing in your book because I thought this was pretty funny is when you talked about, wait, where is it? Um, It was the whole thing about when you were on the Rush Limbaugh show. Well, I was dying that ran beside the Rush Limbaugh show. That was the craziest part. I wasn't even advertising on Rush's show. I happened to advertise beside it. And these little trolls on the internet go completely batshit crazy off their rockers because they want to stop Rush. These people are in the Gaddy Mama's basement. And I got tired of getting hollered at. Like, it's awful. <laughs> I don't like awful people. I really don't. No, I completely agree with you. So when you talk about the real estate industry, what would you say are some of your big pet peeves? What are the things that you think are the most important that we need to change? Hmm. Oh, see, now I can go down a soapbox for days on this. So I don't understand why consumers don't ask better questions of the realtors they hire. I, I still haven't figured out what in the human psyche says that likability is more important than competence in real estate because you will have some really smart people who use their best friend's buddy's ex-wife's girlfriend because they heard about her and she's never sold a house 
they get shitty marketing, no representation, terrible negotiating. Then they think all realtors suck because they went with a personal recommendation of an idiot, but they didn't ask any questions. So I don't understand where that disconnect comes from, but I think it's because real estate at its heart is such an intimate product. It's a high dollar product. But it's intimate. It's where people hang out and spend time and raise their families or leave their families or raise their dogs to kill their dogs. They do all kinds of houses. You just don't know. You know, we've seen it. It's, right. it's just bizarre to me. So there's that consumer disconnect with competence. But on the realtor side, it drives me out of my skull crazy that as an industry, we train new people on the backs of consumers. So you get a new agent, you give them buyers, because hey, just go ahead and cut your teeth on some buyers. And I don't know why we do that. Why do we think buyers are less valuable than sellers? Well, is it because the agent doesn't have to have any intelligence to do a CMA or because um, it takes a little time to figure out how to accurately price and market a home? So we really train new agents on buyers, but still they go out to list a house and our brokerage model now, with some exception, there are some very good brokers out there, but our brokerage model as an industry is go ahead and go list a house, and you know if you screw up, we'll just not do it again next time. And, and every time we make that happen as an industry, we are harming consumers as a training model for agents. How the hell does that make any sense? And so I'll ask questions like, you know, why don't we have apprenticeship periods? Why don't we have better basic requirements in our industry like a bachelor's degree and then I get attacked from all quarters about how that doesn't guarantee quality well no it doesn't guarantee quality but good lord what we're doing right now is pretty much guaranteeing customer dissatisfaction because you've got the top echelon of agents that do a kick-ass job that are crazy good at marketing and they advocate for their clients and they are honest and forthright and they are amazing and then you have the other 90% who are trolling around out there, doo -doo 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 -doo, and the brokers say, oh, you know, sell one or two houses to your cousins or friends, knowing that they're going to leave the business within two years because our attrition rate is so high. So we're going to screw up, be cousins and friends of new agents so that we can collect their data. That doesn't, there's a complete disrespect there for the consumer. And I think that's why a lot of the portals have made progress in taking business from us because we haven't ever stepped up as an industry. But by the same token, your best agents are totally not threatened by the portals because their customers know that they are different. So anyway, that's, that's two different rabbit trails, but well, I could go on for days. Oh, I could too. I mean, you know, there's two parts of it. Personally, I think the brokerage model as for the most part is broken, right? Like they, yeah. Most situations, in most brokerage situations, they do zero training. It's really a sink or swim model. I mean, I know that's how I learned. Well, you know, I got my license. They're they're throwing spaghetti to the wall, and you see which noodles stick, and maybe two will stick out of a handful. So just hire as many as you can and see what happens. So they don't bother training because 85% of licensees get that within two years. I get it. You're in a losing money model when attrition is that high. But, hey, if we hired better, our attrition wouldn't be that high. Totally. And the funny thing, too, with consumers, I always say, so if you hit the lotto tomorrow, you inherited, I don't know, $10 million, would you take that $10 million and hand it to your sister-in-law who just got her license to manage your money. Like nobody would do that, but they'll do that with a real estate transaction. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. 
And I guess I, from the consumer perspective, I wonder why they think it, I think that they think that selling or buying real estate is not that big a deal. So if their sister-in-law just got their license, how hard can it be? Or she says, you should give me the business because I'm new and I need a chance. Well, did, you need a chance. I mean, I get that. I needed a chance when I first got in the business too, but my dad made me live in his hip pocket for 90 days before I was allowed to touch a client because he believed I needed to be trained and vetted before I was allowed to be cut loose with people. But I mean, I think that consumers only see where they have failed in asking questions and hiring the right realtor when it becomes obvious that they've made a mistake, when they overpay for a house, get screwed on repairs, get screwed in a negotiation, the realtor vanishes, something bad happens, then they get it. And But the crazy thing is, then they say, oh, realtors are like that. We get painted with this broad brush. Well, funny thing is, I just it, it's so bizarre that this comes up because I literally, about a month ago, got a call from a gal who called to say, hey, I saw your name on Good Neighbors of Lincoln, like a, you know, one of those neighborhood groups, and I'm looking for a real estate agent. And your name came up. I said, oh, great, thank you. She goes, well, I'm interviewing a few agents. I was like, Perfect. okay. And I so, I mean, I don't know about you, but how often are you in a situation where they're interviewing other people? It doesn't happen to me very often. It should happen more, but it doesn't. So I went to this interview and, you know, did my whole normal process and my presentation and my booklet and the whole thing. And I really completely didn't think one way or another whether I would get it or not. She was very nice people, but she wanted to talk to her husband. Her husband wasn't there, you know, a little bit. So I get a call a couple of days later and she goes, oh, well, we interviewed four agents and we decided to use you because you were the only one who came prepared. That's what's frustrating to me is like, why were there four agents and three of them showed up completely unprepared with new? That's the part that makes me sad, I guess. I don't know. If realtors that's... say, oh, you want to sell your house? Great. What time can I come over? What's the address? And then they wander over there. They print it off three comps out of the system that may be completely irrelevant to the seller or their situation. And then they try to fake it instead of asking questions before they go out there. It's like, this is my seller intake sheet, these yellow pages. We go through all these questions with the sellers notes all in the margin before I go to the house, because I want to give them a presentation that's fitted to their particular situation. Most realtors don't do it because they're just so anxious to get in the door, especially right now when inventory's low. So they will, they just figure I'll get in the door and by sheer force of personality, I will make them sign with me instead of realizing that the consumer is actually halfway intelligent and may have questions they want answered. <laughs> so what was the key changing point, I guess, for you? Was there something that happened where you said, I need to improve the way I do things or I need to have a process or a, uh, what do I want the client to experience? Like, did something happen for you where that was an eye opener or is that just the way you learned? Cause I don't think that everyone learns that way. I think something happens many times. Do you? Well, I mean, I'm just a very organized person. So I came out of corporate sales where we had those TPS reports like you have on office space that were completely mind numbing waste of time. But I was accustomed to a disciplined sales approach. You have goals, you have steps you take to hit those goals. You do those things. You get into real estate and it's completely disorganized, undisciplined, no process, no set goals, no nothing. And so within a, well, it was within a month of getting into real estate with my dad, he sent me to Star Power University. And of course, your listeners, oh, Howard, Star Power, but Howard Brenton was the best trainer the industry yeah. had. And 
And of course, it's defunct now, but the store power buyer university was two days of how do you work buyer's soup to nuts. And so my dad sent me to that so I would know what to do correctly. And so from the beginning, I had intake sheets and then my buyer sheets are in a different corner of my desk. But I was taught to do intake sheets and I'll tell realtors all day long, this is how I got to 75 million a year in sales is intake sheets. It's not rocket science. It's asking good questions and it's being organized because I too have lost pieces of business where you scribble somebody's name and phone number on the back of a gas receipt and shove it in your console. And a month <laughs> later you find it and say, Oh shit, I never called him back because I saw my dad doing that. Cause he'd been in for a long time. My dad's your classic realtor. He is, the most lovable person you will ever meet. His personality is such that people just list with him because they love him. Well, <laughs> his office with piles everywhere. I can't live in piles. I have stacks that are like, this is my desk. You can see it here. It's like two pieces of paper, my Apple and my running headset. And that's it. Cause I need to be organized. And I, I, that's just how I've always operated my business. Now where my business really took off is that, Beyond using like asking good questions and using intake sheets, I learned to get more and more opinionated because during the dark years of 07 to 13, I mean, too many. Okay, so first of all, a lot of realtors did not realize the market had turned down for about two years. They were just discontinuing totally. things and this house is beautiful. It will sell. And I was like, the market's going down. You got to be the ball in front of the other balls before they run past you. And so we were given them the truth. And then when other realtors figured out what was going on in like nine and 10, they were like this. Oh, yeah, yeah. well, you know, your house is not going to sell. And so I smile <laughs> and I go in the door. I'm like, this sucks. We're going to get our way through it. But people would say, I used you because you're the only one that seemed like you believed it could get done. So it's a mix of, of, organization and optimism, but the optimism has to come with facts behind it. So add all those things together and there's not really one big thing, but I roll with the punches. I am a very situational person. So if I see the market shifting, like right now, I'm watching for this next shift, which is coming because I'm a nerd and having a stockbroker background, I know how to watch the financial indicators. The LEI has been trailing since September. It's not something the media talks about because the public's too stupid to understand it because they're interested in Chewbacca mask women. And realtors, bless them, the only math they can do is 6% of any number. They can't understand big economic data. So I'm looking at these things, trying to figure out what's going to happen next so I can tell my clients, hey, now's pretty good. Wait a year, might be in a hiccup, might be 18 months, could be 24 months, but another hiccup is coming. If you aren't happy today, maybe you buy then and sell later. But our job is to be always looking ahead and to be looking at the bigger picture. And I think a lot of realtors, they never get past the transactional mindset that says, I've got a listing. This is my listing. And now I've got a buyer and this is my buyer. And then they finish that listing and that buyer and they pay, hey, this is a listing. And then they have a buyer and they just go transaction to transaction. They never get to the 30,000 foot view. They never look at their business as a business. It has to be run on paper with questions and details and data. And they wonder why they don't make any money. Well, I love the fact that you still have your paper, right? Intake form. I, I know. I struggle with it on my team. We're trying, you know, we do a lot of stuff obviously online and paperless now, but I still have my good old, I call them my advocate folders. I don't have one handy right here. And my little advocate folders and you know, that basically have all my little information in them. I have blue. Clear plastic so I can see my paper through them. 
Oh, so I have blue for buyers and I have yellow for sellers. So that's how I know who's what. It's all like the little simple stuff that, you know, we have to do to get stuff done. Right. So I know that you also talk, I wanted to talk a little bit about this because I know you talk a lot about real estate agents not getting involved in what is actually happening in the industry. So I just see your eyes roll through your head. <laughs> and I know that that is a big struggle for many. And it's like you can't complain if you're not going to do something about it, right? Hey, but the American public is looking to be offended and looking to complain without taking action. That's the dangerous part of social media. You think that because you fussed about something on Facebook, you've done your part. Well, you know what? That does not count. Your ass has to show up and get it done. And I, I was guilty for a long time because when I was between 2000 and 2009, my first nine years in the business, I wasn't involved. I wasn't volunteering in the association. I wasn't going to legislative meetings. I wasn't RPACing. So I was transactional. I was building my business, making money. Screw that stuff. I'm going to make money here. I'm not going to waste my time in committees and all that stuff. Let somebody else handle it. So I reached a point in my business where somebody asked me to get involved. And that's what happens with most of our active people in our organization. At some point, somebody said, you need to get over here and make your voice heard because I didn't know what RPAC was. Most realtors I find don't. They would invest in the realtor party if somebody had appropriately explained it to them. But too many realtors think that RPAC is the Republican Political Action Committee, and it's not. It's the realtor party. And what we do is advocate for property rights. We are not a special interest group. We are a public interest group. And we have an amazing amount of work to do not liking politics, not liking Trump or Clinton or whoever is going on presidentially, which, by the way, RPAC does not get involved in presidential elections because it's a complete waste of money. But if we are not actively putting our face in front of the congressmen and the senators who determine what happens with legislation, the industry will go under. And so there's a lot of fights that we're continuing to fight. If I'd realized how big it is, I would have gotten involved far sooner. And so I write bigger checks now to make up for the years when I wasn't involved. And so anybody that tells me they don't have time to get involved, I'm going to say this. I sold $75 million in real estate last year on 300 sides. I have two children that both play ball and have piano, choir, art. I'm an elder and Sunday school teacher in my church. Don't tell me that you don't have time to get involved. That is just like saying the dog ate your homework. It drives me nuts. You should carve <laughs> out an hour here or an hour there to advocate for your industry. It's just because you haven't seen it as a priority. And what I'll tell you is that if we wind up losing the 1031 tax-free exchange, which will totally screw our commercial markets, that's when people are going to want to get involved. And guess what? Then it'll be too late. Just like all these Obamacare things that are affecting our ability to hire and are starting to affect all of our industries in different ways, whether you're a Democrat or Republican, doesn't matter. It's affecting us. Well, you can't do anything about it now because now it's an entitlement. Now right, it comes right. it's there. you got to fix it. You can't get rid of it. And so in real estate, you want to lose the mortgage interest deduction before you fight for it. So I think realtors have to think in terms of being proactive instead of reactive, but they're reactive primarily because nobody's asked them. So um, I also say that a lot of the complaint I've heard is that our leadership is all out of touch, hasn't sold anything in years, bunch of old white men, whatever the story is. Well, if that's the case, if your ass isn't volunteering, how's it going to look any different? 
I mean, top producers are the ones that are the most disengaged from association leadership because they say they're too busy. Well, they're the ones that should be having their voice heard. They use the MLS the most. Why aren't they doing MLS policies? They're going to have more grievance complaints because they do more grievance, more deals. Why aren't they volunteering on grievance? They're the ones that have the clients behind them to go to their congressmen and senators and say, hey, I called a thousand of my past clients and here's what they wanted me to tell you. They've got real clout and they're not utilizing it. And so I think the education piece has to get better. But I don't know that it's as big a deal as agents make it out to be. It should be, look, invest an hour a month in building our industry and we'd all be better. I think most realtors would if they were asked. Well, I'll tell you, for myself, I got way more involved when I was younger, when I first got into real estate and back in, I got in in 93, when I got into real estate in 93 and I got very involved in women's council of realtors and I was very involved with them. But what happened during that time is that it also became very clicky, right? And very, um, instead of becoming an environment where you felt empowered and supported, it became kind of a competitive, um, gossipy type of environment. Oh, girl, I don't know who you're talking about because I have seen some of the incestuous relationships in the in the organization, you know, in some places in the country. But I know I know who you're talking about. But here's the thing about it. So I was in high school like you were, and you know, clicks, that's high school world. I was the floater. I never belonged to a clique because I was a nerd who also played sports. And so I was friends with the jocks and friends with the goths and friends with the geeks and friends with the edge people because I didn't belong anywhere. So the only way you break a clique up is to always be present. And so when you don't like the leadership that you have, it's a hard uphill battle. But you also have to remember that if you show up a few times and say, screw it, this is not worth it, it's never going to change. And so, well, and as you have been talking, I was like, oh, I guess maybe I need to, you know, get more involved again, which I think is the importance of the conversations that you're creating out there is that it is a great reminder to say, you know what, you're right. You got to get out there and you got to do stuff and you got to get involved and be and more involved with you. Take somebody who's like minded in your market that you adore. Heather Ostrom, take Heather with you. Say, girl, we're going to have to go to this meeting. I got to go together. We'll have a cocktail afterwards. But two voices together are definitely going to be stronger. And what I've seen with a lot of our volunteers who dip in the water and then back out, they're going by themselves. They're not bringing in like-minded business people. Or they go in the room and allow the conversation to get in that drain that it's already circled. And they sit back, get on their phone, and say, screw it. They need to speak up and say, I don't agree with this. I think this needs to change. I think there's a different perspective. So that was one of the reasons I wrote the book. I want people to find their voice again. Our whole society has said, don't speak up because you might offend somebody. You might be wrong. Well, screw that. You're going to be wrong sometimes. You're always going to offend somebody. So speak up and maybe your viewpoint is going to get somebody else thinking. And that's the first step. So you wrote, that leads me into this next part is that you mention in here that if you try to appeal to the whole world as your market, then you're going to craft a message that is so bland and so generic that you're not actually speaking to anybody. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it is so true. And I think we've become so neutral. If that's a We're neutered. <laughs> yeah, we have all become neutered. That's very true. That's very true. We've become neutral. 
And that makes it even more difficult. Like you said here that uh, I love this when you were talking about the Rush Limbaugh, you said, you said, I told them I'd advertise where I ever, wherever I damn well please. You trolls don't like it. Don't listen. <laughs> and, and on hashtag, I said, I am the free market. Absolutely. And, and I think that that's a big challenge too, is that people don't want to create that controversy, right? So they don't want to get involved in the politics. They don't want to get involved in all of the drama. So they just remain neutral. I know I am guilty of part of that on Facebook. I'm very, I don't get in political conversations and I don't get in religious conversations just because I feel like I don't have the energy for the drama. Um, it's and a shame because like I get the most filled up by intelligent discourse, not by people who fight, but by people who say, Hey, have you considered this and, and have a conversation where you maybe each learn something from each other. And so all these people that are fussing about Trump, they, people hate Trump. They, people hate Clinton. We've got probably the two most reviled candidates we've ever had in an election. And what I've been asking people is, do you realize that this has happened because we don't allow polite discourse and we don't disagree with each other anymore? You've backed out of the process and said, screw it, I'm not getting involved, I don't want the drama, and so look who filled the void. And I'll think about that, and the media attacks. All they do is attack, because as the public, what do we click on? Ugly stuff. You click on ugly articles, clickbait from the Huffington Post and from Slate and whatever other websites you read, you click on the ugly stuff, and... That's what the media has provided to us. And so what do good people say? They say, I'm not getting involved in this. I don't want to get attacked. I've, I was so attacked during my campaign, and I live a clean life. I'm a goody two-shoes. They made fun of my hair. They made up lies about me. And I'm like, uh, what? I, 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 it's not why I'm doing this. And so, of course, good people don't run. And when good people don't run, you get Trump and Clinton. That's completely true. So what... What would you say is your number one priority right now with the stuff? I know you're talking again at Inman and San Fran. You don't know. <laughs> what would you What would you really like for, like, what is the one major change you would like to see in the industry, I guess, other than people stepping up? I mean, I know that that's got to be a number one requirement. We have to make changes to our industry because we're going to fall by the wayside if we don't, right? I mean, there's plenty of people... There's you know, realtors that go by the wayside. There will always be a home for the good realtors. So I don't know that any of this stuff really affects the top echelon. Um, but the, you know, the other 800,000, they could totally go away. We could be a 300,000 member organization. I'd be fine with that personally from a professionalism standpoint, but I get how it would impact our advocacy efforts in DC by being the world's largest trade group. That gives us a power we don't have if our numbers are decimated. I get that picture, but the one thing I would love to see from our industry is a collective effort towards professionalism. And we aren't seeing that because we have every state has its own rules on licensure. That's fine. States rights on North Carolina, you know, and we all about states rights. And you've got this thing where people want to protect their fiefdom and forget the consumer. And so if we as an industry said, we're going to be professional. We're all going to wear suits and blazers and look professional in our business. That would make me really happy. We're all going to yeah. know our contracts. We're all going to take designation classes. We're going to raise our CE requirements from North Carolina eight hours a year to 36 hours a year. Does that fix everything? No. 
but it's a step in the right direction. We're going to implement apprenticeship periods, whatever it takes. I want a collective desire in our industry for all realtors to work within their communities, their spheres, their associations to make people say, you're a realtor. Mm, How cool is that? Instead of you're a realtor. Because right now, totally. you tell somebody you're a realtor, they take two steps back because they're afraid you're going to say, hey, the greatest compliment yeah. you can pay me is a referral to your friends and family. And that's not what I want. I want to say I'm a realtor and people say, damn, thank you. You saved my mortgage interest deduction. You fixed flood insurance. You are doing amazing things in your community. But that takes every realtor on a one-on-one basis, fixing their sphere, fixing their community and that fixes our industry as a whole. And so the hashtag I use when I talk about all this stuff is more than houses. I think if realtors would focus on being more than that transaction-based realtor, more than a house, think about the community issues, go to the town council meetings, go to the school board meetings, talk to your legislators, be familiar with all these things, do affect our property values, because that's what we're supposed to be doing anyway. The consumer would see us as more than a house, which means the portals couldn't touch any of us. So do you think that there's some responsibility also for the brokers? Because I feel like there's also, I mean, obviously it's up to each of us individually, but when brokers don't have any standards for who they hire, their only standard is when they look, it's a numbers game, not all, of course, there's some great ones out there, but for, you know, a big part, it's a numbers game. They don't, like when you go to, in any other industry, if I'm trying to hire somebody, I'm going to check references. I'm going to look at their, you know, how they behave. I'm going to interview them. I'm going to do all those things. But in real estate, we do none of that. We don't check references. So a bad agent can can bounce from brokerage to brokerage to brokerage. Nobody cares. They just want, it's a numbers game. Who can get, like I know there's a brokerage that's growing in our area. And they went from zero to 180 agents in like a couple of years. And I know for a fact they basically took a lot of, the bottom of the fishing pool, you know? So is there some liability and some responsibility there as well to the brokers to, to, to raise the bar? Well, I mean, as a broker, um, I will, I will say that, you know, we try to eliminate bad apples when we discover that they're bad apples and our approach of interviewing is different than a lot of brokers. But, you know, I think about this too. We're in this very, Low split environment in the U.S. from an industry standpoint, it's hard to make money as a broker. So I get why they want so many people coming in. If you're on a per transaction basis or a low percentage, it you can't make a living. So I look at, like, I just got back from Buenos Aires. I spoke in Argentina at the end of March, and I love traveling to other countries because real estate, it, American realtors are so spoiled, they have no idea. So in Argentina, a sales agent doesn't need a license. So you could fly down there today, sell a house, boom, here you go. But a broker needs a master's degree to open an office. So you've got a massive difference in education required to be a broker versus being a sales agent. Well, the sales agents are making 5 to 15% splits. Wow. So the brokers stand to make a lot of money. And so because they're standing to make a lot of money, they do carefully vet their sales agents, even though they don't need a license. They want the right people in the door who can close the deal because the profit's there. And you look here, these body shops that have five and 600 agents, brokers cannot manage all of them because you don't even know who's working in your shop. You're not doing any management at all. But I get it. They're doing it because the, the money has gotten beat down. And 
you know, as an agent, I do want to make money. So the agent hat says, there's a profitability piece here. My broker hat says, where is the profitability as a broker, but the broker still carries a liability? So it's a, it's a fine line. And I really don't know what the solution is because your most dangerous agents will never go off on their own because they don't want their own liability. So your great agents sometimes do go off on their own, open their own shops up, and then they realize it's just more headache than they realized, and they want to get back under another broker. So, you know, maybe brokers need to be paid a better split. But I look at what's coming down the pike, and within 24 months, I do think we're going to lose our 1099 status. I think we'll wind up being W-2s because those court cases were narrowly won last year, and it's it's coming so when that happens the brokers are going to be saddled with the obligations of handling taxes and social security and fica and all the filing and the agents are not going to want to pay for it and so you're going to wind up with a a real loggerhead in the industry that i think is going to knock our numbers down significantly because the brokers will say at that point screw this i'm not keeping a body shop because it's not worth the money i have to pay my bookkeeper to make the numbers work so the brokers will then be forced by regulation to reduce their numbers. So if agents don't want that to happen, they should be proactive now and look better after their brokers and be better agents. And so the agents become more professional brokers by then can manage better people. So chicken and egg. I mean, well, well, yeah, yeah. blame brokers, but brokers are not the only problem we have in the industry. It is a two-way highway. Well, I know that we had a large brokerage for a while. We, I have been in real estate 23 years and we built a brokerage up to about 120 agents. And then when we sat down one day and looked at the numbers and looked at the liability and we have to pay workman's comp insurance now, which is to me the gateway drug into the W-2 form, like you said, um, it didn't make sense. And so we literally made the conscious decision to shut down our brokerage and go back to just being a small independent. You know, I have a few people on my team and I'm doing coaching and training like you and way more profitable, way more fun, not as stressed out, not as expensive. It's not worth it. Like those ones that run 150, 200 agents, I just, I, you're right. You can't manage them. And you know, out of those hundred agents, you know, only 10 are producing mm -hmm. and you're counting on those, you know, few that do a few deals here and there. It's just not worth it. No, because that's also where your E&O goes through the roof because the agent who does one or two deals winds up getting hit all the time because they don't know what the hell they're doing. And your big producers are, you're paying them such a high split to keep them in the shop that you're not making any money off them either. So it's a, it's a tough, it's a broken it's, model mm -hmm. for sure. Well, as we wrap up a little bit here today, Lee, I know that you're coming to San Fran in August, right? For Inman? Yes, I'm actually the mistress of ceremonies. I saw that. Uh-uh. <laughs> I saw that. I was like, I, the minute I saw that, I go, I'm signing up for sure. I'm going to be down there because that will be fun and entertaining. And we'll have Heather there. We got to make sure Marguerite comes, the other Marguerite G. And put uh, any filters on me, which I really appreciate Brad Inman for that. He lets me say what I want to say when I say it and let the chips fall where they may. So that's always good. Uh, <laughs> well, thank you so much. Is there anything else you'd like to talk about today before we wrap up? 
No, I don't think so, but it's been a pleasure chatting with you, and I hope all your listeners will keep tuning in for more fun interviews as you line up more fun people in the industry. Yeah, you've been extraordinary, and I was so excited to talk to you, so thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule and life today, and I look forward to meeting you and uh, maybe getting able to have a cocktail or two there in San Francisco. You're in my hood. We're only like an hour and a half away, so I'll be there the whole week. Well, I will look forward to meeting you then. It's a short eight weeks away. I can't even believe it. Yeah. Thank you again for joining me today, Lee. I look forward to seeing you. Talk to you soon. Hey, thank you, Marguerite. Right. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us today on Real Estate Real World, where we talk with masters and leaders in real estate and beyond on how we can raise the bar in our industry. Please subscribe over on iTunes. And while you're there, be sure to give us a review. Your reviews encourage us and help others find our podcast. For show notes and hot topics on what's going on right now in our real estate industry, pop on over to www.realestaterealworld.com and add your name to our email. Thanks again for listening. And go out there. Be a part of the elite masterclass in raising the bar on the real estate industry.